I want to begin by reading to you the Old Testament text for today. This comes to us from the prophet Isaiah. And I'm actually backing up a little bit from what the lectionary prescribes us today, but I think that that matters. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. Keep that in mind today. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall be to the Lord a memorial for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Hear what the spirit is saying to the church. One of the challenges I think we often face with texts like this, texts like the parable of the sower, is just how familiar they are. We've heard them so often that we think we know how to hear them, or at least that we understand what they're saying to us. But in Matthew's gospel, these parables get introduced at a really interesting time in Jesus' life. A quick review of what's happened in Matthew's gospel thus far, leading up to this moment when Jesus shares this parable. First, Jesus is baptized in Matthew 3, and he suffers the temptations, and then he calls his disciples in the very next chapter, in chapter 4. Jesus then begins his teaching ministry with the Sermon on the Mount in chapters five through seven. And then over the next several chapters, Jesus engages in this extended teaching discourse about the nature of his Messiahship, who he is and the kingdom of heaven that he is proclaiming. And then at the end of this discourse, the religious leaders, they're asking for a sign. They wanna know, how do we know that you're trustworthy? How do we know that you are who you say you are and that this kingdom is what you say that it is? So they asked Jesus, give us a sign. And the only sign Jesus gives them, the only thing he tells them is to remember Jonah. I think about how, how odd that is to remember Jonah of all the stories that these people are gonna be carrying with them into this moment. He says, remember Jonah. And he tells them, and this is so, so strange, he tells them that on that day of judgment, that day when they're saying the, the kingdom is actually gonna be realized and brought to fruition, he says that it's gonna be the people of Nineveh who are going to rise up and condemn this generation. Speaking to these religious leaders, it's going to be the people of Nineveh that are gonna judge and condemn you. 
Now, if you remember anything about the story of Jonah, Nineveh is the place that's so wicked that God has to send Jonah. And it's so wicked, in fact, that Jonah doesn't want to go there at all. And so Jonah famously runs away, gets swallowed up by a whale, gets spit back out on the shores of Nineveh. Those are going to be the people who look at this generation, who are asking for a sign, and Jesus says they're going to condemn you. So it's here. It's after his baptism, after his temptation, after he's called disciples, after he's announced the Beatitudes, he's been teaching, healing, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. And now Jesus begins to teach in parables. Robert Capon, this priest and theologian, we're going to talk about him a lot today. He surmises, he hypothesizes that it's at this moment when Jesus realizes his teaching ministry has failed. (laughs) It's at this moment when Jesus realizes all of the things that we've been doing, all that we've been trying to accomplish, all the things I've said and the ways that I've said them, they've just fallen flat. It's all been a failure. And that everyone from the common laborer to the religious leaders, everyone was looking for the wrong thing. And so they couldn't hear the right thing. Everyone's looking for another kingdom like the King David established hoping that there's going to be a new Jewish kingdom that's ruled by God, anointed under God's law. But all along, Jesus has been repeatedly announcing that the kingdom is here. It's not on its way. It has arrived. And the reason you're missing it is because you're looking for the wrong thing. So Capon says, put some words in Jesus' mouth, and he says, well, Jesus seems to say, Since they've pretty well misunderstood me so far, maybe I should capitalize on that. Maybe I should start thinking up examples of how profoundly the true messianic kingdom differs from their expectations. They think the kingdom will be a parochial, visible proposition, a military established theocratic state that will simply be handed to them at some future date. Hmm, what if I were to stand every one of those ideas on its head? What if I were to come up with some parables that said the kingdom was Catholic or universal, that the kingdom was mysterious, that the kingdom was already present in their midst and aggressively demanding their response? That's the turn that we see Jesus making at this moment. This is the context in which Jesus begins these teachings of the parables. And of course, Capon is right. Most everyone who hears Jesus' teaching has a kind of expectation of what that kingdom ought to look like. The disciples, if you remember, they're regularly arguing about who is going to be the greatest, who's going to be sitting at the place of power, at the place of privilege in Jesus' kingdom. Inquisitive people keep asking Jesus, is now the time you're going to do the thing? Because it's not yet here yet. Is it coming? Are you the one? These are John the Baptist's own words. He sends one of his disciples to Jesus to say, are you really the guy? Is this thing really going to happen? Because here's Jesus announcing that the kingdom is here and the kingdom is now and John is sitting in prison. Part of the problem for first century hearers of the gospel is the same problem that 21st century hearers of the gospel experience, and that is what we believe is true 
about power. What kind of power do we believe the kingdom actually brings to bear on the world? Martin Luther, the great reformer, discussed the difference between what he calls right-handed power, or what he refers to as straight-line power, versus left-handed power. He, he coined these terms to describe the way that the power of God's kingdom is executed versus the way that the powers of our imagination are executed. Right-handed power, he says, is about using direct force. It's about employing sufficient control in order to get a kind of desired result. Right-handed power isn't just about physical force. It can be things like emotional manipulation or coercion. Any means by which someone is compelled to do your bidding in the world is right-handed power. This is political power. This is employer-employee power. This is any power in your life that puts you or others under threat. But the kingdom of God, Luther argues, is a kingdom of left-handed power. It's power that's based on love. It's power that's based on forgiveness, on sacrificial service. It's intuitive, it's open, it's generous, it's broad, it's imaginative. It's paradoxical power because its very strength lies in its weakness. And it's that power that bears all things, that believes all things, that hopes all things, endures all things. This is the power we see in the mystery of Jesus' life and his ministry. And when Jesus announces the kingdom of God is like that, nobody believes him. Or at least they don't accept it. Because it seems as though that kind of power can't actually do anything. It can't actually accomplish anything. It can't get anything done in the world. So Jesus tells them, listen, a sower went out to sow. I think for a lot of us, we've thought of ourselves as the original sower, or at least we've thought that the original sower is Jesus and the seeds are like his teaching ministry and the people who hear it and respond to it and grow up in it, those are the disciples. And when they grow up in it, then they turn around and then they're now the ones who are sowing and now they're the ones who are spreading the seeds of the gospel. And now it's come all the way down from Jesus to the disciples, out to the ends of the world, and now to us. And now we are the ones who are spreading the seed. It's as if we have in our minds an image of Jesus and then the disciples and then ourselves as the church going around and sprinkling something called the word of God. And so we take it that the meaning of this parable is that there are going to be places and there are going to be people who won't receive you because they're hard-hearted or they're stubborn or too gravelly to accept you and to accept the love that you're offering them. And the problem here is that as you follow this thought all the way through, you become the center of the parable. If I'm the one sharing the gospel and you're too stubborn or you're too jaded or you're too hard-hearted to receive it, well, now I have to let you know that you are frustrating the work of God. When in reality, I'm just frustrated that your life doesn't look the way I want it to. I have a sister 
and she's wonderful. She has three sweet kids. Her husband is a high school English teacher, an amazing teacher, but she is the director of an organization called the Women's Fund. And it's an organization that believes that families and communities, they thrive when women are both economically and physically secure, safe, healthy. So they work toward those ends, providing a lot of really, really awesome resources uh, to their community, access to healthcare, advocacy for women in the workplace, just all around amazing work. And last night she got this message from a woman who, she's known my family for decades. Let's, for the sake of uh, anonymity, let's call her Linda. I could have said any name. You don't know who these people are. And Linda decided last night she needed to take it upon herself to reach out to my sister, again, someone that she's known for decades, or at least known of her, and tell her that because she lets her kids watch Harry Potter, because she shared a post during June about pride, and because at times she's advocated for women's health care, that somehow my sister is blaspheming God, blaspheming her heritage. She's disrespecting her family, our family. And she says to her, I hope you can find the way to Jesus. Otherwise you are lost. <laughs> what drives a person to do something like that? What drives a person to see Harry Potter, like board game being played with an eight-year-old kid and goes, you are blaspheming God. What drives a person to do that? This is it. Linda sees herself as the center of this parable. Linda sees a life that she can't fully make sense of or at least in the way she's made sense of it, can't possibly be aligned with the kingdom as she knows it, as she's received it, as she's understood it. Linda is frustrated because what she thinks she's seeing is the work of God being frustrated in someone's life. And because she is the sower, she has to straighten it all out. And let me tell you, I have some thoughts on where Linda can stick her opinion. Because the good news is you and I are not the ones sowing. There's not a moment in our lives when we are the ones responsible for doing the sowing of the word of God. The first thing that the parable says, which is affirmed by the whole of the scriptures, is that God the Father is the sower. Jesus, as the word, is the seed that is sown. And what that means on the plain terms of the parable, as the seed is scattered on the road and the rocks and the weeds, is that this seed, Jesus, has already and literally been sown everywhere, in all places and at all times. The world is sown and being sown. And here's the scandal of it all. The word is sown, Jesus is sown, without a single bit of earthly cooperation or even consent. This is the Catholicity of the parable. None of us asked Jesus to be sown and Jesus spreads him across the earth anyway. 
Capon argues, in the sower, the four kinds of ground listed are clearly meant to cover all sorts and every kind of condition of human beings. There are no cracks between them into which odd cases might fall. There is no ground beyond them to which his words do not apply. What is he saying? In Jesus' telling of this parable and his later explanation, there is nothing about a specific nation or people, about God's special covenant to the Hebrew people, obedience to the Torah, or any kind of law. The seed is scattered. It is sown generously to all places and to all people at all times, the seed is sown. And when the economy of the kingdom is at work, when God the Father is scattering Jesus the word, it actually works. It works. God the Father is actively scattering the seeds of Jesus' own life in your life all the time. I don't know if you do much gardening, but I don't. I wish I did. I've spent hours reading about, this is a little embarrassing, hours reading about grass seed, watching videos about overseeding. My wife makes fun of me because my TikTok feed is mostly like golf and people mowing their lawns. I've watched about what kind of practices, what kind of seed works best where and when. I've stood in my backyard imagining what kind of flowers and plants would work best in which places to be the most beautiful. But I've never done anything. (laughs) But here's the good news, that's not God. God's not sitting in his armchair reading seed catalogs. The seed is scattered. The seed, the word, Jesus himself is fully in action in and of himself at every step of the parable. God is at work. God is not thinking about his work. God is not frustrated by this work. God's not preparing to do the work. He does no tilling. He does no soil prep. God just scatters the seeds. Everything that's necessary for the seed's perfect work is at work from the very beginning. We are the ones who add all of the extra particular circumstances. We are the ones who say, well, if they just watered a little more, or, you know, if they just till those rocks out of there, or, you know, if you didn't introduce your kids to Harry Potter, no! The power of the seed isn't dependent upon the cooperation of the soil. That's the good news of this parable. The seed, like the word, always does its job. The work of Christ on the cross has been completed and has been finished regardless of our opinion. The Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world, period. Capon goes on to say, think of some of the things we have said to people. We have told them that unless they confess to a priest or had the sacrifice of the mass applied specifically to their case or accepted Jesus in the correct denominational terms or we hit the sawdust trail and did penance and cried their eyes out or straightened up and flew right, the seed who is the word present everywhere in all his forgiving power might just as well not really have been sown. 
The word does not ask our permission to be sown. For the sower, God's own self has already sown it. Of course, we know that there are things that do frustrate that work. And that's the whole arc of the parable. There will always be environments that are hostile to the gospel. I almost said hostas to the gospel. But the seed is sown regardless. Even in a hostile environment, even if that hostile environment is your own heart, the word always achieves its purpose. Even in bad soil, the seed germinates into new life. That's what the parable tells us. Capon says that even the birds that come and eat the seed eventually fly off and pass the seed and spread it further than they were originally sown. The seed always does what it was intended to do. What happens to the seeds sown in bad soil isn't a kind of punishment. The seed not taking root in a life or in a heart, it's not a punishment for the conditions of the soil. The growth and the vibrancy the seed wants to offer isn't withheld because the seed isn't in the right conditions. Again, Capon says that Jesus is not threatening some kind of retaliation by the word against people who fail to make the best response. Rather, he is almost wistfully portraying what we miss when we fall short to bear fruit. For a plant, the failure to bear fruit is not a punishment visited on it by the seed, but an unhappy declination on the plant's part from what the seed had in mind for it. It is a missing, he says, of its own fullness, its own maturity, even in some deep sense of its own life. The word wishes that we would bear fruit. Bearing fruit is the natural response to the word. If we would just abide in the word and get out of the way, that's what Jesus is saying. God has done the work of scattering the seed. And what you have to do and what I have to do is get out of the way. Think about some of the other stories that Jesus shares. The parable of the great banquet in Luke's gospel. The only thing that the invited guest has to do is show up. The table has been prepared. In John 14, Jesus says of the vine and the branches that all the branch simply needs to do is abide in the vine. We just have to be the big Lebowskis. Just abide, man. The vine provides everything that's necessary for the branch to be fruitful. (laughs) Or think about Paul's teaching on the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh are the result of us trying to achieve a left-handed kingdom with right-handed power. But the fruit of the Spirit are the things that are simply allowed to grow unimpeded, freely under the guidance of the Spirit. This is why we don't have to be concerned about other people's lives frustrating what we think determines the gospel. This is why you don't have to be a Linda sending people messages about Harry Potter and rainbow flags. 
is because we can see the fruit of people's lives. I haven't responded to Linda. Again, her name's not Linda. Maybe it is Linda. You have no idea. I've not responded to her. But if I could, I would say this. Linda, you have no idea the good fruit that's bearing up in their lives. You have no idea of the generosity with which their kids move about in the world. You have no idea the way that they embody what Jesus talks about as the greatest kind of love that you can have for people, which is to lay down your life for others. Listen, teachers lay their lives down for others like nobody else. But you don't see that. Linda, you don't see that kind of fruit. Why? Because you're too concerned about what you think is frustrating the gospel rather than bearing witness to the soil, rather than bearing witness to what kind of fruit is actually being born out of these conditions. The kingdom, Jesus is saying, is not one of accomplishing a work that we have achieved It's not anything that we've done. It's simply bearing the fruit that's already been sown in us. Capon says, true enough and fittingly enough, the most obvious point in the whole parable is that the fullest enjoyment of the fruitfulness of the word is available only to those who interfere with it the least. Who interfere with it the least. The good news is that the work is already done. There's nothing left for us to do. That doesn't mean we do nothing. This isn't a fatalist, like nihilistic response to God's work. It means that we don't have to fret when other people's lives don't look the way we think they ought to. It means we don't have to straighten out those people that we think are frustrating the gospel. Because even in the harshest conditions, the most hostile environments, the seed is still scattered. And all we have to do is respond to that faithfulness with our own faithfulness. We don't have to worry whether the word will achieve its purpose, but whether we will enjoy Christ's achievement or will we find ourselves in opposition to it. And as surely as Jesus was thinking about Jonah, Jesus was also thinking about those words from the prophet Isaiah. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and return not, but water the earth, making it bring forth life, giving growth, giving seed to the sower, giving bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. Who and what is that word? It is Christ himself. It's the seed that scatters. And this is what the prophet says. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that for which I purposed. Somehow, in some way, even the seed that's scattered on the road and on the rocks and in the weeds, somehow, it still accomplishes that for which God purposed it. 
This is how Isaiah is gospeling the gospel if the gospel doesn't sound like good news. (laughs) The seed is not wasted, it's given generously. And wherever it falls, wherever it lands, it's not wasted. It returns to God, having done the very thing that God intended for it. And when we encounter a world that seems hostile, when we encounter that own hostility within ourselves and we wonder why would God sow a seed in those kinds of deserts, we remember, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be concerned about other people's lives frustrating the gospel. We just respond with faithfulness, abiding in the light and the love of Christ and let the fruit grow. Amen.